congressional delegation. Yes, I led the delegation. And what were you able to see? So we were able to meet with um, uh, all of the uh, government's leaders, the president, uh, the prime minister, and the speaker um, were very gracious to make time for us uh, uh, in Baghdad. We were up also in Taji. Uh, I was able to visit my shoot down site and see the clearing in the field where I landed my helicopter um, 15 years ago. Uh, and then we went up to um, the Kurdish region and we met with the prime minister Abarzani up there and had a very good conversation and, and was able to see the changes in, uh, in the intervening 15 years. Because when I served in Iraq, I flew all over the country so I could see the changes that had happened. What kinds of changes did you see? Well, the Kurdish area looks, I mean, when I used to go up to the Kurdish area, there's one fancy hotel on top of a hill and that was it. Um, and, and, and we landed on a hillside and, and we park our helicopters and walk up to the one hotel. Now it's got a high rise, it's gleaming, it's modern. Um, uh, uh, there, of course, is- This is Erbil. This is Erbil. Uh, there is, of course, unfinished uh, areas where um, uh, uh, 20, after 2014 with ISIS happening, um, but it's very vibrant. And I left from an international airport on a regularly scheduled Air Dubai flight. I was like, this is an international cosmopolitan city here. Very different um, and, and very different to be in the same country and see the difference between Erbil and Baghdad, but then also to see the difference between Erbil now and Erbil um, uh, 15 years ago. I know it's always hard when you're on a government trip to judge what security feels like because the government's sense of security is they want to keep you very secure. Yes. But did you get any sense for, for how, how activity had changed, whether there was a lot more commercial activity, how, how that felt? I sense a lot more commercial activity in Baghdad. But remember, when I was there in 2004, it was the height of some of the really bad, the worst times there. And so we were very much in a siege mentality with tea barriers everywhere. We, we just didn't go outside of the, and the green zone was massive. Uh, there, 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 uh, new, um, uh, you know, now that we're there, that the speaker has been pulling down all of the tea barriers. And so it was really nice to be able to drive out. To what had been inside the green zone was now outside the green zone and see people driving around and, and, and the commercial activity, a lot of college students, uh, young people going to school. And, and so it's kind of nice to see all of that um, and, and to see that the tea barriers have gone down and to see flowers and all. It was not an image of Baghdad that um, I had seen in the past. And yet one of the things I've seen you talk about is that in many ways the, the sense that we're out of the woods in Iraq is a little bit misplaced. It is. That, that you've felt that there's a, there are dangers lurking that we need to be careful about. I do think that Iraq is in a precarious situation right now. Prior to me going, I also was of the belief that ISIS had been defeated and now it's time to solely focus on economic development and uh, uh, and that ISIS was no longer around. We just had to deal with the widows and orphans. Well, that's truly not the case. Uh, ISIS is defeated in the sense that it no longer holds territory, but the personnel, those fighters are there. And I um, learned that many of them actually have been ordered to be intentionally captured so that they can use some of the camps uh, to reset, get fed, get stronger and, and, and be around um, and, and, and be able to um, survive to fight another day. And then of course you have all of those, the 30,000 ISIS widows and orphans that are, uh, uh, that must be dealt with. Otherwise that will be the next generation of ISIS fighters in just a short a time frame as five to 10 years. And there's also deep suspicion of the broader Sunni population that in fact all of them fall into this mm -hmm. ISIS category. That they might say they're not ISIS now, but in fact every Sunni in Iraq, which is a substantial part of the population, is, is considered to be suspect. There is that sense, um, uh, and, and you know, but I think people also saw that people got up and went and joined the fight against ISIS and were able to repel ISIS, and, and that both Sunnis and Shia did that. It wasn't just one particular group. Uh, I also have to say that the Sunni population certainly um, uh, is you know, somewhat justified in, 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 in their sense that they were mistreated uh, and that, uh, uh, but, but they bought into something with, the, with ISIS that they had no idea what they were getting into. And, and there's just as many displaced Sunni out there as well. I mean, so what we have now is these Iranian-backed militias now hold ground that 
Sunni populations or Christians, so you see these used to live and they can't even go back there even though ISIS is no longer there because now these uh, Shia uh, militias hold this ground. Generally coming from the south as I understand yes. it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's a, that's a piece of Iraq that's always puzzled me is, is they're, they're the problem that the sectarian identity becomes so strong that then the map becomes more determinative than it can really be. And you have pockets of this and pockets of that. It's almost like redlining yeah. in a US racial mm -hmm. sense. And that's, a, I mean, and that's a problem in Iraqi Kurdistan. It's a, certainly a problem in Kirkuk. Mm -hmm. the, the, how, how did people talk about that problem, the problem of sectarianism still being so important to the way Iraq works? Well, I mean, even the government is set up, right? We help them write the constitution and, and the government is set up so that there is this division where if you have, you know, uh, as we do right now, a president who is Kurdish, then the prime minister is going to be from one group. And then, and then the ministers of, of the various, um, the, the heads of the various ministers, if you've got a minister who is Sunni, then you have to have Shia as a deputy. And then you've got to get the right, you know, of the right coalition, of the right backing group. And, and so this is why so many of, these, of the positions remain unfilled. Um, that said, I will tell you that I was pleasantly surprised that uniformly among all of the leadership that I met with, there was a real sense of um, at least an effort to present a national Iraq identity. That uh, uh, when, I, when they talked about repelling uh, ISIS from Baghdad, they talked about Iraqis dependent Baghdad. They said, yes, there were the, 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 the Iranian-backed militias were there and certainly did a big part of the fight. They were very careful to always thank me and the Americans for being there. But they also talked about Iraqis fought off. And, and it wasn't Sunni fought them off, Shia fought them off. And, and so I think there's this emergence of a Iraqi nationalism that the leadership at the very least, I got the sense of trying to foster and build. And I especially get this um, interestingly from the prime minister. Yeah. Do you think there's an American role in encouraging that? Or is, is that something that largely Iraqis have to work out among themselves? an American role in that and certainly um, our U.S. Embassy personnel when I spoke with them uh, are always very um, uh, encouraging of all three of us. So I went with Senator Angus King of the Independent, uh, Johnny Isaacson of Republican and me a Democrat. So we were a tripartisan delegation. Uh, a rare one because uh, there's only two independents and, and one's running for president so there's only Angus King. He's not going to Iraq as well. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but but the, our State Department was very careful to always remind us to please uh, uh, help support this effort on the Iraqi leadership to foster an Iraqi identity and to, um, you know, really congratulate them on defending Baghdad. And yes, we helped, but really, you know, it's the Iraqi people and this sense of nationalism. I also sense from some of the young people a real resentment, um, almost as if, especially in, in the Baghdad area, that the, the Iran-backed militias had overstepped their bounds and that, and that they felt like Iran was, had gone a little bit too far and, and they were pushing back against that. And, and that's one of the, the hardest things for me, is realizing how much influence Iran still has, even though we're the ones who, who fought a lot of the war. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we go to Iraq secretly. The Iranians go to Iraq with big parades. We're always mm -hmm. concerned about security. Yeah. They don't seem concerned right. with security. How much influence... Well, they made a note of that, haven't they, recently? That's right. How, how much influence do we really have? Do we need more influence in Iraq? Are there ways to build more U.S. influence? Or is this just something that, that is, is falling to its equilibrium? No, I think we need to engage more. I think we definitely need to engage more um, uh, uh, with Iraq. And, and it, it has to be beyond the military solution. Um, I, I, we, we were joking in the back where oftentimes people think, okay, well, we fought the war, we won, right? So why are our troops still there? The best description I got was that the U.S. forces were the rebar that hold the coalition together. Um, so the concrete crumbles without the rebar. And, and so even though we don't need to be the main force that's there, we need to be there with our coalition partners. That's on the military side. We have to engage economically as well. Uh, one of the complaints I heard from some of the young people was like, you know, I'm just tired of these cheap Iranian shoes that, um, that that's like the stuff that's flooding our economy and it's not very good stuff and, and we're like the dumping ground for Iranian 
cheap Iranian goods at low quality. As that gets pushed out by cheap Chinese goods. Right. So you need a market. Right? <laughs> exactly. But then I hear from, you know, I heard from, from, from young people, and, and especially in the Kurdish area, we're like, you know, I, I, I want to be able to buy stuff off of Amazon too, but I can't get a, a credit card, you know, because the banking system here isn't good enough. And, and so this is where the young people are. I think we really need to engage economically um, as well as diplomatically and militarily. How do we do that? Well, not without a lot of help from their government. Um, uh, one from of their the, government? From their government. So um, uh, they have to change some of the issues that they have right now. Just, for example, the visa process. And I saw a big difference in this between the Kurdish area and, and Baghdad. In Baghdad, if you're a businessman, an American businessman, and you want to do business in Baghdad, it takes you three months to get a visa, and it's a single entry visa. You go up to the Kurdish area, and you can get you know, it pretty quickly, and it's multi-entry. If you're doing business, you need to be able to get in and out and, 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 and have some sort of uh, ability to build those relationships and make those investments. And, and certainly um, uh, in Baghdad, the prime minister said he was working very hard to abbreviate that process. Um, but you know, uh, there's no minister of the interior there right now. He is the minister of interior and prime minister. That's a lot on one man's plate to try to handle. Are there other things that, that you think the U.S. government needs to do in terms of, of legislation, investment guarantees, incentives? I know we've worked a lot with, with Gulf states to try to encourage them to invest. Uh, but what, what are the other U.S. government components to help the Iraqi economy along? I think getting the Gulf states to, to invest would be very helpful. I think. Um, uh, uh, being a friendly nudge <laughs> to the Iraqi government to really fix some of these problems that are more economic and, 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 and spend some time looking at those issues. Something as, you know, as I said, as very bureaucratic as fixing the, the, the visa process is something that's critical. I was very happy to hear that the prime minister was just last week up in Europe, I think, signing a deal to um, uh, develop their natural gas uh, 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 capability there because you know they burn their natural gas their own natural gas and they, they buy natural gas from Iran but they're bl burning their own because they haven't developed the the processing plant so I think that was a major step forward so I'm very very happy that they did that that they're moving forward and are you worried about the level of Iranian influence or do you think that's something the Iraqis are adequately concerned with on their own oh I'm, I'm worried about it but I think what we should be focused on is what can the United States do to be a good ally to the Iraqis? Um, I, I don't think that this idea of trying to keep Iraq, not, not saying that that's what we're trying to do, but, but I almost feel like when I talk to the general population, they feel like you know, Iraq should be beholden to us and you know, we, we liberated them and all of this. I don't want Iraq to be like a little brother to us. I want Iraq to be an independent, strong nation in the Middle East with its own strong ties across multiple nations. So I, I, I want to encourage them to have stronger ties with Jordan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia so that Iraq, an independent, strong nation, that's the best ally for U.S. interests than an Iraq that's beholden in, to either us or Iran. I don't think it should be this either or zero-sum game. Are you going to align with Iran or are you going to align with us? No, I want them independent and, and able to forge their own way because that is better for us than it is than anything else. And let, let me ask a hard question. I know you're new on the Armed Services Committee. I am. Not for lack of trying, let me tell you. There was a lot of whining to, uh, <laughs> to Chuck Schumer for those two years I was waiting to get on. <laughs> um, how important should Iraq be as the U.S. thinks about the Middle East? I mean, where do you, when you have to rack, you know, rack and stack all of our interests in the Middle East, where does Iraq fit? Where should it fit? How much more, given we've put a lot into Iraq, mm -hmm. how much more should we put in and, and what should we maybe do less of so we have more bandwidth to do more with Iraq? Well, I, I think that Iraq is very important to U.S. security. Um, and I think that with where ISIS is right now, that is, it's, it's pretty much pervasive but underground. If we don't do something, to uh, uh, support the Iraqi government and help them move the ball forward and encourage them to deal with their internally displaced persons, to encourage them to figure out a solution for uh, uh, the, the, the ISIS widows and orphans, other than the current solution, which is put them in a camp in the middle of the desert and do nothing with them, because all you're doing then is you're just, that's just a ISIS training camp waiting to happen. Um, uh, so we have, I think we need to do that and then help them deal with these, with these issues. Um, uh, 
that will allow them to grow and, and, and become stronger, become the leader in the, in the region. I think Iraq has great potential to be a real leader in the Middle East and a real ally to us. Uh, um, uh, one, you know, they're, they're independent uh, in terms of natural resources. They, they've got the stuff to be a real leader in the region. They just have to figure out their internal um, issues because there's so much being thrown at them right now. And, and it's almost like they've become the battleground for, you know, first Saddam and then now it's like US-Iran issues and, and, and it doesn't, what we need to do less of, we need to stop declaring by tweet that we're pulling out of Syria and abandoning our Kurdish allies. We need to stop uh, declaring the uh, Iranian uh, uh, Republican Guard, a terrorist organization, just out of the blue without leading, without talking to key advisors and, 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 and both our diplomats and our military leaders. Um, we need to, uh, you know, now I guess we're moving an, an entire um, uh, battleship uh, into the region, an aircraft carrier. A strike group, yeah. a, a destroy, is it a destroyer group? So a strike group, a strike with, group with bombers, yeah. With bombers uh, into the region. Um, I had craft day at my daughter's preschool this morning, so I, I haven't caught up on my reading yet. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but the CNO yeah. also yeah. said they were already going there, so it's not really a change. Right. He tried to. Lower the temperature. This is this is the thing, right? You 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 get the White House that's amping up the, the, the temperature, often unbeknownst, unannounced, unsolicited from his own diplomatic, you know, their own State Department or the military leaders on the ground, and then you find that the the State Department and, and the military has has to like tamp things down. I, and, I've, and I've never met an administration who is willing to be led by the State Department. I think the, I think the White House always thinks their job is yeah, to lead the State this Department. Is true, but you should, if you have somebody that you've appointed, they should maybe call and ask their opinion. You know, I mean, when 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 I sit in Armed Services Committee, and I ask every four-star officer who comes in front of the committee and every diplomat who comes in front of the committee and says, will you consult it before the president tweeted that we were pulling out of Syria? And not a one said yes. And they all say, oh, I learned about it on Twitter. That's a problem. That's a problem. So, I mean- You lose trust. Your allies don't know whether or not they can, why would your allies listen to the uh, diplomats on the ground or military leaders when all of the work that you've done to try to build relationship, to try to move the ball forward, is just undermined completely by a tweet. So somebody from the White House watches this mm -hmm. on the web and says, we're going to show bipartisanship mm -hmm. by going to Senator Duckworth. We're going to say, OK, if you think we're not being strategic in Iraq, what's a, what's our, what should our strategy really be? I mean, boil it down, strategic objective. Here are the resources. Here's what we're going to do more of. Here's what we're going to do less of. Mm -hmm. Here's what we're going to stop doing in other places so we can afford to do it. Mm -hmm. I think. Two camps, economically and militarily, I think uh, maintain our position within the coalition, but really push the, our role away from the, the combat type of role where we're already in that advice role, but really push the Iraqi military to be able to do some of the things that they're not doing very well off. So for example, they're not very good at doing their own intelligence operations. They're not very good at maintaining their own equipment. The Illinois Army National Guard is there right now, uh, uh, Task Force Lincoln 44. We've got 44 guys down there. And, and it's a logistics unit. And I sat down and talked with these folks. And, um, and they said, you know, it's, it's they're even just teaching the Iraqis to do the maintenance on their own tanks. And they have four, you know, four tanks sitting at Taji that have never been driven. They've got F-16s sitting, uh, uh, I think it's in Arizona, that have never been flown. So you've you got to stop just buying new. You've got to push for maintaining what you have. And, and that switch needs to happen. And the Iraqis are perfectly capable of doing this. We just have to say, hey, the days of U.S. writing checks for you to buy a new tank are over. But here, we're going to work with you because you've got smart people who can learn to maintain these tanks. So that's sort of the military part, maintaining, being the rebar for that military coalition to move forward and let the Iraqis really be able to handle themselves. Um, uh, economically, we really need to engage economically. Um, and, and that means that, uh, uh, you know, I think the, the Chamber of Commerce did a whole delegation there. Um, they did. And, and in I don't December, think, right? In December. I don't think much came out of it, but I think that's the kind of thing we need to do more of. Um. Can I ask a congressional piece? Mm -hmm. You've been on this tripartisan delegation. <laughs> how, did, how does planning for the trip change the way the Armed Services Committee work? How does it change the way? I mean, did you, is, 
the act of traveling with colleagues, did that fundamentally change your relationship, or did it just sort of build on what was already a positive one? You wouldn't decide to travel with people you didn't like anyway. No. Uh, <laughs> well, you announced that you're going to go and see who, who signs up, and um, a couple folks had to drop off that I hope that if I, when I do this again, they'll come. Uh, Marsha Blackburn, mm -hmm. um, she has a large Kurdish population in Nashville, and uh, she had really wanted to go and at the last minute couldn't, so I was disappointed because I was really looking forward to getting to know her. She and I have nothing in common other than we both served in the House at one point. Um, uh, I don't think we've ever voted the same way on anything, but it was a good, would have been a good opportunity to really get to know her, and she's been very positive about wanting to go. Um, uh, Johnny Isaacson and I have known each other for a long time, um, and so it was nice to develop that friendship. And already coming out of Iraq, um, Angus King, Johnny Eikenson, and I have already identified several things that we're going to work on together economically in terms of legislation, not even armed services, but, but legislation that is um, more economic um, to try to move the ball forward a little bit. Has Iraq become more of a bipartisan issue now that, that it's less on the front page? And has that enabled the Senate to come together, or is Iraq? so far off the front page that people just don't even have positions on it. I think it's so far off the front page. I really do. I think people think, oh, we've, we've won. ISIS is defeated. All right. That's, you know. If anything, I think it becomes fodder for uh, presidential candidates to say, let's pull all the American troops out of there. What are we doing there? Because that's a popular line, right? And what do you see the, the, the spillover from Syria being like into Iraq, if, if ISIS is able to, to sort of reestablish itself over the border in the absence of an American presence, do you think that would necessarily come over to Iraq, or is the border secure enough that, that the Iraqis have the means to, to oh, isolate it? The, the border is absolutely porous. Totally porous. Totally porous, yeah. The border is totally porous. And, and this is where um, I think the, the Kurdish region and the Kurds are doing an amazing job up there. You know, I think 1.8 million of the 3 million internally displaced persons are actually going into the Kurdish areas. And, and they're certainly um, uh, uh, have some real challenges, you know, trying to take care of their own population, trying to deal with the, um, uh, making sure they get their enough payments and, and, and the deals that they have to make with, with Baghdad and, and all of those relationships. And then they have all of these, I mean, you know, have. In this one little region, you have more internally displaced persons than, than in the rest of Iraq. And that's really quite remarkable that they're trying to do what they're doing and they're taking care of all these people at the same time. And you've got these fighters that are going back and forth. And so this is where we have to, as a, as a country, we have to make it clear that we stand with our Kurdish allies. They've always been there when we've called on them. We've always been there to fight alongside American troops and we cannot abandon them. And, that really was the impetus for me to go on this Codell. Originally, I just wanted to go into Syria, and I just wanted to go and show real support for our Kurdish allies. And um, uh, if we, this is this is a dangerous place. Do you think the, Do you think the administration made a mistake, not being more supportive of the the Kurdish referendum, or should it have been firmer earlier and headed it off? I mean, how do you think they handled that whole issue? It should have been headed off. Should have headed it off. Yeah. Be forceful early. Yeah. And do you th I think th I think the Kurds ended up hurting themselves with that referendum, and I don't think it was helpful. I think it might have been helpful for the Kurdish people to coalesce around it, but on the ground, I don't think it was very helpful. And lingering wounds. Yeah, I think they're still having to deal with those issues. Um, I think we have some time to go to the audience if people have questions here. Um, we'll have a roving microphone. If I could ask that you identify yourself, uh, that you only ask one question, and that you ask your question in the form of a question, which is not to make a long speech and say, what do you think of my speech? Dick so we'll Durbin right always says that if, you don't, if it's not a question and you just want to make a statement, then you have to run for office yourself. Excellent. <laughs> and then you have to raise money. Yeah. We'll start right here in the aisle. Um, Michael Gordon, Wall Street Journal. Uh, during the Iraq War, um, Shiite militias backed by Iran often targeted and killed um, American forces. In recent years, uh, there's been essentially an informal truce between the United States and these militias as they fo focused on a common foe, uh, the Islamic State. Now that the administration is, is designated, the IRGC is a foreign terrorist organization and is applying maximum economic pressure. Um, there's concern that 
this truce may become undone. When you were in Iraq and talked to American forces, what was their perception of the threat posed by these Shiite militias, and what is your concern that the, uh, this uh, threat, which has been relatively dormant in recent years, might be reactivated now with the downturn in U.S.-Iranian relations? So the sense that I got from, from our American leaders on the ground, both military and diplomatic, was less of a kinetic fight threat from the, Sh the Iranian-backed Shia militias, but more of a seizing of power by those militias. So they had um, a, a, an election just last year, and it, they had some of the lowest voter turnout. But the Iranian-backed Sh uh, Shia militias actually had uh, enough they were so well organized that they actually won seats in the parliament because they were actually able to get the people either through threats or just through better organization, people to go to vote. Whereas overall, um, uh, across, you know, across the population, voter turnout was low. So they ended up winning a disproportionate share of the votes. And, and now what you have is the Shia militia, these Shia militias actually have, uh, Iran-backed Shia militias, I should say, have seats in parliament. I think it's more a seizing of, of of power politically is, is where I got more sense of concern from uh, uh, Americans that I've talked to there and, and who are on the ground than it is about, you know, are there gonna be more Shia militia, more guys out there trying to shoot down American helicopters? I didn't get that sense. In the front row. Thank you. Uh, I'm Bayan Sami Abdurrahman. I'm the representative of the Kurdistan Regional Government. Thank you very much, Senator Duckworth, for uh, the things that you've said and for visiting Erbil and Baghdad. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. We need to widen the relationship between the US and Iraq and, of course, Kurdistan region. I often say to our American friends, you have invested so much in our country but how well do you know us? You don't know our music, you don't know our cuisine, I hope you do by now, but you know, I think that since Americans have invested so much in our country, in capital, human capital, political capital, in treasure, in blood, we really do need to get to know each other and I think commercial ties, cultural ties, as you said, are the key and it's a struggle for us, as you've pointed out as well, how to maintain the interest in Iraq. What we fear is that Iraq, Kurdistan, all of us, we will muddle through with the challenges that we have, ISIS as a rampant terrorist organization, these armed militias that aren't, frankly, many of them aren't really under control, we will somehow muddle through while the US and other allies turn their attention away. And then there'll be another crisis. And then everybody has to parachute in again. How can we avoid that mm -hmm. without being overly alarmist, but also being realistic? We need the United States to stay the course, to pay attention. And I don't know how to do that beyond what we and others here in Washington are doing, which is to do the rounds, to remind people, don't you know, pay attention, don't focus all of your attention elsewhere. I think the US should be able to multitask and maintain a real eye on Iraq and Kurdistan and help us to get through these situations. And again, thank you for all of your support. Um, I think that's a really great comment, and, and one of the, it was actually brought up uh, by our, our um, charge of affairs that I met with there, and he said that he's trying to encourage Iraqi um, uh, uh, leaders uh, from Baghdad to take more trips to the U.S., but there's almost a sense of, if I don't get to go to the U.S. and meet in the Oval Office, I'm not going, um, and, and that's really, that's not useful, and, and we should get more members of the parliament here to meet with American uh, 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 you know, House and, and, and Senate members and, and, and get those relationships and foster those relationships. Our Kurdish allies certainly do a lot more of this. You're, I, you've met with me since I've been in the Senate three times, I think, in my office, once, at least once a year. And this is important. Those relationships are very important to build. But I don't see that coming out of Baghdad as much. And I think that that's really critical is to, to, to make those relationships. And there's such a great resource here in this country of Iraqi Americans 
and, 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 and Kurdish Americans who, who really can help build those relationships. And, and I don't think we're, we're leveraging that the way we should. Um, but, you know, getting them to, I don't think the word is lobby, but getting them to come and, and, and more regularly and, and meet with us is, is important. And it doesn't all, every visit doesn't have to be a state visit. We had Prime Minister Abadi here a few years ago mm -hmm. on this stage. And uh, so, with it's Mohammed, we can get we can get a prime minister again. Thanks, yeah. sir. Yeah. Hi, I'm James Martone from Sky News Arabia. And you mentioned the um, men and women who are in, in camps for having fought for ISIS. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm. What are as a as a senator, but also as a as a mother, I'm more concerned about the children because these these adults. You know, they made decisions, whether it was good or bad, but what about those children? Also, very little is known about these Yazidis women, children, that have been taken from them and because they're not allowed to go back to their, their, their group unless they give up the children. So what are your thoughts on what the United States should be doing to ensure that these children are taken care of? This is really hard. I, I um, this is you where just, you might just want to give background for people who don't. I know the story, sure. and I'm sure you do. But yeah. it's it's important for people to understand. These are the children of ISIS fighters and Yazidi women, who are not given Iraqi citizenship. The Yazidis will not take the women children back. They'll take the women back. They'll take the women back, not the children. And so, and there are. It's not exactly right. Okay, you wrote a story about it, so. Can we give her a microphone and she can explain yes, the story? Yes, you'll listen. Because bottom line is, I think this is where I had some of the greatest frustration while I was there, because I spoke with the United Nations refugee program uh, people uh, and development program people who were there. Um, and, and when I spoke with the Iraqi leadership, there was a sense of, I'm more they were more worried about, and this is important, more worried about the coming rolling blackouts this summer in the Basra region, and their solution to these children was to put them in a camp um, you know, in the middle of the desert. And it's like, all you're doing is just warehousing kids who are going to be radicalized. They're going to be, if they're five, I think of the 30,000, 10,000 are children under the, age of, under the age of five or even younger. So that's the next generation of fighters in less than 10 years if we're not careful. I'm going to a story yeah. from her. So. Uh, Kim Dozier with The Daily Beast. Picking up on James's question, um, I did spend about three weeks there and met um, Yazidi elders who explained that while they welcome the women back, the Yazidi religion passes through blood. You can't convert to be being a Yazidi. So the women who are coming back with um, ISIS children, uh, they didn't know what to do with them um, because the Iraqi Constitution's Article 26 requires that if you register a child who either has a Muslim father or an unknown father, the child automatically is registered as a Muslim and that automatically changes the woman's religion to Muslim. So it's Yazidi genocide by Constitution. Um, but then, so that's one issue of what happens to these children that have come back. But then the other issue is uh, estimates I heard were up to 100,000 or more uh, families, including the mothers and the children, being kept in these camps that the concern was that they were becoming de facto internment camps. Yes. So the question is, what is the U.S. or the international community able to do? What, what strength are you able to bring to bear from Congress to reach out and say, we've got to de-radicalize, we've got to reintegrate these folks back into the community? Well, that's, that's the question, right? They, the Iraqis, have to come to some sort of a willingness to want to reintegrate these, these displaced persons back into society. And, and some of, there's a real resistance to that. Um, and there's a real, I almost want to say, um, I'm you know, burying your head in the sand. They don't want to deal with that problem. It's too overwhelming. We got to deal with these other things first, because if I don't deal with the rolling blackout this summer, I will not be in office anymore. And so that, that's a real issue. But, but the United States, I mean, our we can't go and participate in helping maintain an internment camp, for example. We can't advise or consent to that. So it, it's a real issue. I, I spoke with the UN um, um, folks who were there, and I said, well, what, what happened in Rwanda? What did they do to forgive and, 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 and 
and reconcile? Is, is there, isn't there a tradition of payments that can be made to right the wrongs and move, the, move things forward? And then it was brought up to me that well, actually these Iranian Bakshir militias are now sometimes holding territory that was Sunni that Sunnis can't even go back to because now there are people there that are not, they were never there in the first place. So it's, it's, it's a real conundrum. I, I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that uh, 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 we have to work with the Iraqi government to encourage them to continue to try to figure out what that solution is and work with the international community. But we can't just ourselves turn our backs on it because that's the next, you, you ask about the fighters who are gonna come shoot and target Americans? That's the next generation that's gonna do it if we allow them to continue to be radicalized. And by the way, ISIS is making widows payments to these women, who are the most radical of the, I mean, not the Yazidi women, but, but the, the radical, uh, the 30,000 are getting widows payments. They're actually successfully able to enter into these camps and make payments to them. So yeah, they don't hold territory, but they're still very powerful and they're still um, very much uh, uh, have resources to do, to function. Remaining and expanding is their old slogan and they seem yeah. to, right there, yes sir. Yep. yep. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Farhad Puladi. I'm with the Voice of America Persian Service. Um, my question is that, uh, so you recently been in Iraq and you talked about Iran's influence in Iraq, especially the Revolutionary Guard. Uh, as a member of the armed services, uh, do you have any recommendation for the administration or are you willing to go ahead with a bill or resolution to curb or yet better eradicate Iran's influence in Iraq? And if I may ask, uh, Second question, what's your appraisal of uh, beefing up the naval presence of the U.S. in the Persian Gulf? Uh, do you see any sort of even limited uh, engagement uh, or uh, limited uh, strike against Iranian targets? Thank you. Well, I haven't seen all the intelligence that the White House are, uh, is claiming has brought them uh, to the point where they're bringing in a greater uh, uh, naval presence. But as you said, their commander is saying, well, we were already on our way there anyway. Um, I, the sense that I got from going there is that the designation of the, of the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization was an unnecessary poke to the eye. And this whole idea of also maybe um, designating the Muslim Brotherhood, and it made the jobs of our diplomats and our military men and women on the ground that much harder because it means that once they're designated, you can't deal with somebody in Iraq who's had dealings with those folks. And there's not any a lot of folks in Iraq who have not had some sort of dealings with the uh, Iran, some sort of element of the Iran back, uh, uh, the revolutionary back Shia militia. So you're basically tying the hands of our diplomats on the ground from being able to actually do their job. Same with our military men and women and saying that this, this was not necessary. We can still oppose Iran's influence. We can still uh, uh, certainly uh, 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 make sure that we, we push forward American interests without these moves, which were you know, almost a propaganda-ish move to make, but that really didn't help us further our cause on the ground and made things harder for the folks on the ground who are trying to do their jobs. Yes, ma'am, right here in the front row. Lauren Milroy, Kurdistan 24. Thank you, Senator, it's a very interesting presentation. You've described a lot of problems in Iraq. These, ISIS has gone underground, these huge amount of displaced persons. The, you could have added the corruption that in, inhibits the reconstruction of the area. Do you think it's possible for the Iraq to address these problems without something like the far-reaching decentralization that Senators Brownback and Biden proposed a decade ago? Would that be, might that be something to consider? Um. I think the solution has to come from the Iraqi people. And I, I have to say, I was very much impressed with the current leadership that are in Iraq now, uh, uh, with, the, with the president, but especially with the prime minister and with the speaker. Um, very dynamic, very much uh, uh, brilliant men who really are trying to do something here. And maybe not always what America wants, but they're trying, to, they're trying to move the ball forward on behalf of Iraq. I really got that sense that, that they're, I know that this is some criticism of the prime minister's being too tied to Iran, to Iran, but I almost, what I got from him was more a sense of Iraqi nationalism than I did, uh, uh, you know, um, wanting to look to Iran. And so I think that um, 
helping them move the ball forward and, 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 and helping them and pushing them, being very firm and pushing them to do things like, some of it is very mundane, like, like changing their visa system, like signing this contract to develop their natural gas, like um, um, let's, let's do something so that you can actually make foreign investment more attractive here. Uh, fixing the banking system. It, you know, they have some great resources, not just in the oil that's, and natural gas that's underground. They have 100,000, I think it's 100,000 young people entering the workforce. Maybe it's 180,000. No, it's 800,000 young people entering their workforce every year. That's a challenge, but that's also a resource. You know, I, I don't know an area where you have young people of that age who don't figure out how to do banking on their phones. I mean, if you can solve this problem in Africa, why can't you solve this problem in Iraq? But to be fair, I mean, we've, we've been trying to persuade Iraqis to sign certain kinds of oil deals yeah. and approve certain yeah. parameters of the kinds. And we have, been, we have been in the encouragement, urging mode in Iraq Virtually every year since yeah. 2003. And we you don't do this. We're, you know, we can't be here forever. And, and by the way, you've got a real existential problem right now. You have to do. And, so and are we doing it wrong? No, I think that the conditions have been different. I think there are different players who are a combination of folks who are in leadership now. I think the combination of the, of, of the prime minister and the speaker is a really powerful one. I, I think uh, what the Kurds have been able to do up north sets an example of the type of the type of progress that can be made if you would just do some of these very simple liberalization things. Remember that the same boom that happened in the Kurdish area happened in that short amount of time. Right up until 2014, they, so they show that it can be done if you would actually put in these these policies that that fix things. And by the way, they did it while they were under resourced, and now they're doing it and trying to regrow their economy while they're still dealing with 1.8 million displaced persons in the Kurdish area. So I think that there's potential that can be made. Um, I'm really really pleased that that I, I said that Prime Minister was signing this this gas development deal, which is critical. Um, I hope he fixes the visa system, which is what he said he was going to do. Um, and we'll, we'll see what's next. Thank you. Hanny's going to have an economic question, I know, because Hanny always has an economic question. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, you've mentioned about the importance of Hany, Iraq. Hanny, you have to introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Hanny Findakli. I'm an investment banker by profession. Uh, you've mentioned about the importance of Iraq for the U.S., um, and uh, I do not see Iraq on the radar screen of, in the U.S. Uh, it had a flurry of articles because of your visit, but that's about it. I travel throughout the world, in Asia and Middle East, and it's not, uh, it's not on anybody's uh, radar screen. Uh, uh, but it has become a very important country for Iran. And this week, it has become even more important. Uh, with the end of the exemptions that the administration has given to five or six countries for Iran to sell its one million barrels of oil uh, per day, um, Iran is, is now hard-pressed to find uh, outlets. And the only outlet that makes sense and is available and is very easy to, to, uh, to deliver is uh, through uh, smuggling into Iraq. So Iran will find a, a very easy outlet for one, man, one million barrels or more. Uh, Iraq becomes more important to Iran. Iran becomes more important to Iraq. And yet we're sitting there looking at uh, small bits and pieces of this, uh, this thing, fighting ISIS and dealing with some of these other issues. So uh, my question really is, uh, uh, what kind of uh, strategic vision do you have in which economics has to be the, the centerpiece of it? Because Iraq, uh, ISIS did not uh, um, uh, develop in a vacuum. It developed in, the, in, 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 the, in an environment of, of, of an absence of central government and central power and economic stress. Now Iraq is facing exactly the same situation. Yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's a central conundrum of what's happening. We, I think there has to be some sort of an economic uh, uh, strategy. And it can't just be the United States, though. That's the other part of it, is, is we can't be, we, again, we have to be that reform, and we have to work with the international community to come up with some sort of a, of, of a, a plan. Unfortunately, we continue as a nation to enact these, uh, these decisions without ever talking to our allies, which is really frustrating. Um, and yet, Iran is there every single day, and now with seats in the parliament through their militias. And, and so um, they're there in a way that we're not. 
and, and, and we have to change how we're there and we have to change how we engage um, as an international community. And, but I do think a greater emphasis on economic development and, and um, financial development is, is, is something that we, we need to focus on. Thank you. Is there a question here? Yes, right here in the second row, yeah. Danny, can you get the microphone there? Second row. Hello. Um, first, I wanted to say thank you for your service and for all you do. Um, and second, I wanted to ask how you think that the private sector and government contractors can continue to help support U.S. government um, efforts in Iraq. Specifically, uh, where do you think the support needs to be focused? And I ask that because I come from a company that has almost 3,000 employees overseas, overseas in Iraq, but we work in Balad and we run uh, the Balad Air Base. Uh, we run the largest medical facility over there, and I'm wondering how else we can kind of support U.S. goals and efforts um, yeah, in the country. So I think the current model can't be sustained long-term, um, and that is where basically U.S. forces are out, now we have contractors doing, the, doing what U.S. forces did, and the Iraqis are not doing for themselves. So for example, the M1A1 Abrams tank is a great example. Those, those tanks are being maintained, but they're being maintained by American contractors. The Iraqis are not maintaining their own tanks, and they're not driving them, they're not ex exercising them, all the ones that they have. And so we have to shift this mode over where they're doing this themselves instead of just paying for you know, uh, foreign military sales or, 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 or using military aid that we give them to then go ahead and pay for uh, contractors to come in to do this work. Is there a reason do you think they don't want to do it? That's just not been the mode, and that's not how we've been giving them the money. We've been, we, we're part of the problem. We're like, oh, you want this? Let's go buy this. Four military sales? Yeah, I, I've got Boeing in my state. Yeah, I've got you know, whoever. We're going to sell it to you. It, it's, it's also American politicians who've been part of this problem. What we need to do is, is work with the Iraqis to develop their maintenance and their capabilities. And if we're going to use contractors, then let's use contractors to do that, to be able to work with the Iraqis so that they can set up their logistical network so that they can do these things themselves and get out of this mode where we're just using the U.S. defense budget and then the foreign military sales to help them buy things to buy from American companies who want to make the stuff to sell to them, but then they don't have enough pilots that can fly them. They don't have people who can maintain them. Right. So a question in the back. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm from Skokie, so thank you for being my senator. Um, my question is, uh, the Trump administration provided Iraq with energy waivers for a few months at a time, and we have, and they've been threatening to withdraw that waiver for their energy sales to Iran, or the energy purchase from Iran. So the, the last one is going to expire in June. Um, what would be the consequence if the United States removed that waiver and said that they might sanction Iraq for continuing energy sales for to Iran? It would be pretty devastating because the oil, you know, something a huge percentage of the Iraqi population is employed in government and they're paid from oil sales. Um, uh, and I think it would be detrimental to their economy. And I, if anything, it will push them closer to Iran. And that's not helpful to us at all. Um, one of the things I heard time and again from all the leaders on the ground there, the, especially the Iraqi leaders, was they just wanted some consistency in US policy and some sort of a willingness to commit at a consistent level over a period of multiple years. Or like, instead of you know, the, this, this pendulum, can you just say that you're con going to commit to us for five years or 10 years at doing something, um, instead of the very, very uh, uh, up and down nature of, of, of how, we re how we work with them. And, and again, they weren't saying, you know, don't give us $100 billion, give us $10 billion over 10 years. That's not, you know, but, but it was something along those lines. So just, be consistent with your support and what you want us to do, but don't do these like, you know, two months at a time, three months at a time decisions because we can't make any decisions and we can't, and we're paralyzed from moving forward because nobody wants to work with us because nobody knows what the U.S. is going to do next. So it's similar to the kinds of relations we, or the kinds of agreements we have with Israel and Egypt mm -hmm. where they understand many right. years out where it's going. Exactly, exactly. And that will allow, and that will actually empower the leaders who are there dealing with a very tough situation that will empower them to actually to make some of these tough decisions that they have to make. Do you think there's congressional support for that? For how could you win it? How could you win, what, what would it take to win congressional support for that kind of long-term commitment to Iraq? 
a lot of hard work on, on the part of people like me, I guess, doing my job, you know, just, just well, working with my colleagues and really just showing how it is in our best interest long term to do this. Although presumably it also requires some confidence that the future governor of yeah. Iraq is going to be the same yeah. dream team that you've described having now. Well, I don't, uh, wait, wait, I don't think they're a dream team whatsoever. I'm very frustrated yeah. with them as well, but I'm just saying compared to what's been there in the past that I have seen, I see in some areas a significant improvement and real effort there. Uh, uh, I think the prime minister is, is brilliant. Um, uh, it, he was nobody's first choice. He was more of a consensus pick. Um, uh, is he frustrating? Yeah, I found him frustrating. I, I couldn't get, pin him down on the question of the 30,000 refugees. Um, but I do think he's resisting, their, you know, everybody uh, and trying to forge a more Iraqi path forward, which I have respect for that. Um, uh, the speaker, very young, very dynamic. Um, we'll see where he goes. He's, he's you know, fairly new on the scene, but he's made a lot of changes. Um, it, it could, this could all go, you know, you could have mass uprising this summer and this whole thing could fall apart. And so, and so, so I'm wondering how you get Congress to do yeah that kind of steady commitment when the politics remain fragile, there's a, the perception of an enduring threat from Iran and Iranian penetration, the issue of Iranian mm -hmm. uh, uh, oil sales and, and the, the, uh, the, the closer integration of the Iranian and Iraqi economies. I mean, that, that strikes me as a, a complicated set of ingredients to put together the kind of strategic commitment that, that you said your trip persuaded you is really necessary. Right. But the alternate to that is worse for us. The alternate to that, what I would say to my colleagues, is the alternate to some sort of a long-term steady commitment is an Iraq that completely falls under Iran's control, is a resurgent ISIS, not 10 years from now, but a year or two years from now. Um, so that's an even worse alternative. I, I, I think this is one of those cases where I, when I talk to my colleagues, I say, this is it, guys. Either we, we, we be the rebar and we help them and we make some real commitments now, or we're going to be looking at sending U.S. troops back in to help repel the next ISIS wave, or we're going to be seeing Iran even grow, um, and then we really truly have lost Iraq. You have presented a really remarkable picture of a country that is both in a state of unprecedented promise and a state of, of really serious danger yeah. that you have issues coming from ISIS, you have issues coming from Iran, you have issues coming from the sectarian divisions within the country, and yet you have a leadership that is genuinely visionary, that can work in new ways, and presents opportunities for the United States that we haven't had uh, perhaps ever to put Iraq on a, a new course. I appreciate your coming. I'm glad you got back safely. I hope you, uh, you had a, a good trip and you have more excellent trips. Yes. And we hope to see you back here at CSAS. Please join me in thanking Senator Thank DeBecker.